Good evening everybody, we're back with another exciting interview. Unfortunately we couldn't join you last week because there was too many things going on and the people who were scheduled or that I tried to get on couldn't join us. But we're going to make up for that tonight with a very wonderful special guest. We have Krishna Kshetra Swami joining us tonight. And he is a very prominent um, spiritual master in ISKCON in the Hare Krishna movement. He is a disciple of Srila Prabhupada and uh, an initiating spiritual master. So he holds a very prominent role um, within the Hare Krishna movement. Um, I've known him loosely for 20 years or so and heard him give various classes. And I love his music. He, he sings beautifully, does wonderful kirtans. And he's been kind enough to join us tonight, or he will join us in a few minutes. I just started the presentation slightly early so that I could give a little introduction to him. I just and I should be able to see you in a second, but I don't see you yet. I see three devotees, but I don't see you. So if you're just here, um, then I should be able to add you. Um, this usually this usually begins with a few technical difficulties. The interview. So, also Maharaj, oh here he is. Um, I'll just add him and then continue to um, introduce him. So he should be joining us in just a couple of seconds. I was also fortunate enough to be with Maharaj when he came to New Vajradam in Hungary um, and to serve him there. Oh, Maharaj, I was able to add you. Okay. Wonderful. Here you are, Maharaj. We Thank you it. for joining us. Hare Krishna. Thank you for having me. Usually these things begin with a slightly edgy anxiety over whether the technicalities will work and tonight was no exception but thank you so much for taking your time and being here with us it's very nice to see you again and uh, good to see you last time last time was in hungary wasn't it well we briefly saw each other at back to vedanta manor um i think around a year and a half ago something like that i think you came to give a class uh-huh. But the the Time most time we've spent together was in Hungary. Yeah. yeah. I was just introducing you, Maharaj, and you're such a special guest that I'll just if I get to say a couple more sentences. So please. So people who don't know you, they'll they'll just realise um, you know, what the situation is. So I was I was saying a few things and um also Maharaj was in New Vajradam in Hungary a few years ago. I'm not sure exactly how many. And you were writing your book, um, How Care in Hindu Animal Ethics. And I was serving you or trying not to get in the way uh, to some degree whilst you were there. And it was really lovely to have your association and to talk about a few different topics and get your insights. And um, so Marsh has kindly agreed to join us tonight. And many of the topics that we're covering are to do with agriculture, are to do with sustainability, are to do with ecology, 
and we're very happy that various people in our local community here in Ashford in Kent who are local producers, local business owners, local people trying to make a difference and to do something ecological and live in a more sustainable way mm -hmm. are listening to these presentations, whether here live on Instagram or later on YouTube. And Maharaj has written this uh, wonderful book, which is all about cow care and the Vedic conception of it or how it works. So we'd like to pick his brains uh, in a, uh, the nicest way possible tonight and to get his insights into what that actually means. So Maharaj, maybe we can start and I can just ask you, why is it that cows are so important according to the Vedas? For, for us, for, for a Western mind, we would think, you know, a cow is just like any other animal. So why does it hold a special role in, in the Vedas? Yeah, it's a good question uh, for which I, you can say that's the answer is my book. Uh, <laughs> it's a whole book of explanation. Maybe I should uh, do a little promotion here. This I have a copy of it here so mm -hmm. I can show what it looks like. <laughs> um, published by an academic press, but it's open access, which is meaning that anyone can download uh, the digital copy free of charge. Um, why are cows special? One way of understanding is in terms of benefits to ourselves, because as the way our minds work, as human beings work, we, we always want to see what's, what's the benefit for me right? And what's the benefit for us? So I've divided into uh, tangible benefits and intangible benefits. And the tangible benefits, we're all familiar with cow milk. Um, people are less aware that uh, the two other items that come from the cow. And when I say cow, I mean also the male, the, the bull or the ox, um, are the, the dung and the urine. And something they've known in India since who knows when, um, since millennia, it seems, is just how beneficial cow dung and cow urine are. Um, they're good for the health of the soil of the earth. They're extremely good for the health of the soil. Uh, so they, um, they function as um, nutrition for the soil. And they're also, they have medicinal value. Um, the ancient Indian system of medicine called Ayurveda, which means literally uh, the knowledge of life duration, <laughs> how, to, how, to, how to make the best of our life duration. 
So there's a lot in there about uh, benefits of cow dung and cow urine. And uh, there's also, there are other, other um, we can say, practical uses of both of these. <clears throat> They're used in cleaning in Indian villages. Uh, they're used, uh, cow dung in particular, is uh, especially valued as fuel and as a purifier. Uh, mud walls and mud floors are made fresh and um, fresh and pure by smearing them with a mixture of cow dung and water, and this is done regularly in every, every village. And it gives such a nice atmosphere uh, to, if you visit such villages, you'll feel there's something uh, quite special about the atmosphere, and much of it is that. Fuel also, uh, cow dung is important. And then there are uh, intangible benefits and the intangible benefits are a bit difficult for us in the West to appreciate because they're intangible. <laughs> we don't see them. We like to, you know, we want to see physical results or we want to see financial benefits and so on. Uh, but simply to have cows, to be in the presence of cows, uh, it's understood again in India that if you, um, if you want to be peaceful, uh, if you're having some emotional disturbance, then cows are ideal to just be around. Uh, in general, they're understood, their presence is understood to be purifying, purifying the atmosphere, uh, purifying the earth, the water, uh, and so on. Now, so we can, we can get a little sense of their value from that, but there's another dimension, which is also difficult for, uh, Westerners to appreciate, um, but this is, how shall I put it, a kind of cosmic dimension. Cows produce milk. Uh, of course, animals also, other animals um, produce milk, but cow milk in, a, in particular is favored. And from milk, we can make several products. We can make milk, uh, yogurt, we can make butter. And from butter, there's something uh, which is especially valued in India. If you take butter and heat it uh, on a very low flame for, uh, for some time and skim off uh, what comes to the surface, eventually you get purified uh, butter, uh, what is called in India, ghee. 
And then ghee is used in cooking. It's also used uh, in special, especially in festival cooking. But in particular, it's used in what's called yajna. And this is uh, the sort of ritual center of what we call the Vedic tradition of India. And the, the, the thing to, for us to try to appreciate about this is that it's a kind of recognition and confirmation that we as humans have a very uh, particular role to play in the world for, uh, for cosmic maintenance, for keeping everything in the right sort of balance. And that is expressed through uh, this kind of ritual process in which a key ingredient is ghee, in which uh, this clarified butter is offered into fire. And looking at this from the outside, it just looks like, yeah, just it's a ritual. Uh, mantras are chanted, uh, invocations. Uh, this liquid ghee will be poured into the fire. And what do you see? You see these material, material things. But what we don't see <laughs> is how a certain cosmic order, if you like, is being affirmed. And to make it all work, one has to keep cows. And keeping cows doesn't just mean keeping them as we see in the modern um, industrial agriculture worlds that for the dairy farms, they'll keep the cows as long as the cows are giving milk. And then when they're giving less milk, they will send them for slaughter. No, uh, that doesn't work. And why it doesn't work? Because it turns out that cows are extremely sensitive beings. They're very conscious and uh, those who have cows, who live with cows, uh, where the idea is to keep them lifelong, not killing them, letting them live their natural lives, the cows seem to know it. They seem to know, I'm, I'm safe, I'm uh, going to be cared for uh, throughout my life. And so they are peaceful, and because they're peaceful, the milk they give, uh, and from that, the butter and then the ghee, is of a quality which can't be matched <laughs> by any artificial means. Now, there's another, we're still on the question, what's so special about cows? Here I want to refer to Mahatma Gandhi, who uh, is well known for his uh, campaign for, free, for liberating India 
uh, from British rule in the early, in the first half of the 20th century. What's less known is that he was a, a very big champion of, well, animal protection in general, uh, that is to not unnecessarily kill animals. And in particular of cows, uh, he, he wrote extensively on this subject uh, or repeatedly. Uh, he gave many speeches on the subject. And one point I found in my research that really struck me, and that was that human beings, through their care of cows, develop or establish a proper relationship um, with all other living beings. In other words, life is complicated <laughs> and uh, we, we struggle in so many ways in this world. Uh, we are, in order to survive, we have to eat in order to eat in the fact is we have to kill. It doesn't mean we have to kill animals, uh, but in some places of the world, uh, perhaps that is, um, that's the, seems to be at least the only alternative. But uh, what Gandhi was saying is that a, a sort of gate, gateway, you can say, into understanding how we should properly relate with, with our environment in general, but with other animals more specifically, is the cow. If we care for the cows, we will have naturally a sensitivity by which we will better know how to, how to act and how not to act in relation to other animals, other kinds of animals. Um, now, one can still say, okay, but why cows? Why not, I don't know, uh, many other sorts of animals. And I would just point to, well, I mentioned the word Vedic. Uh, the Vedic literature is, uh, it's considered foundational to uh, Indian civilization in particular, uh, the tradition says more broadly human civilization. And there we find uh, that cows, cow care, we find in Bhagavad Gita especially, it was one of the major duties of one of the major categories of, uh, of occupation for farmers uh, was, in particular farmers, has been uh, what's called in Sanskrit, go raksha. Uh, go means cow and raksha means protection. And I was just thinking about this today, um, it, that uh, in one of the ancient texts, one of the Upanishads, we have this story of uh, Nachiketas. He was a young 
he was a boy, uh, and his father. And the boy, Nachiketas, was sort of standing by and watching while his father was giving many things away in charity. Uh, giving in charity is very much praised in Vedic literature as a, um, a way for human beings to um, sort of get right with themselves and the world. So this, uh, the father of this boy was giving away, he was giving cows, uh, which is especially uh, appreciated to give cows uh, is, is, and their details, when to give cows, who to give cows to, who is per, uh, qualified to receive a cow and so on. So he was watching his father and at one point he said, dad, why are you giving away these old cows? And his father gets a kind of annoyed that his son is pestering him like this. So he, that's, that's another part of the story, but I won't go into that. Uh, the point here is that the father was giving away old cows. So what that means is that old cows were not killed. He was giving them away. Now the son was saying, you know, it's not nice to give old cows away because what's going to be the value for those who receive? They're going to have to maintain. <laughs> so the point is that they're uh, not killing the old cows. And so there's a sense that cows are valuable throughout their lives not necessarily economically valuable, but in the wider, broader sense, they're valuable for human culture, human civilization, for, for getting the right balance uh, with ourselves, with each other, with uh, the world around us. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Maharaj, that was very insightful. So I, I'm sorry if I was too long-winded. <laughs> no, no, of course not. No, that was wonderful. So many things were coming to my mind when you were saying that it's, you know, it's obviously a massive topic that you've explored in your book. I was just thinking that the Vedas talk about different members of society that are meant to be always protected Right, there's the mm -hmm. Brahmanas who are kind of like the intellectual or saintly aspect of society. Mm -hmm. There's women, there's children, old people, and then there's also the cows, right? So it seems to be right. something that the Vedas prescribes that they are just to be protected and looked after. That's in one way in which we're supposed to engage with them. Right. Yes, that's that's true. And and, and what I was saying gives a little hint of the reason for that. Um, but you're bringing this up just like we, <laughs> I mean, it sounds crazy, but we, we never think to kill our old people because now they're old and useless and they're just too much trouble to maintain. So in this culture, the same sense is there with cows 
And particularly, it's, um, it's emphasized that the cow is identified as a sort of mother. Mm. Um, not just the female cow, but again, um, all, all bovines, they're considered like mother, uh, associated with the earth, they're nourishing. And so this analogy is made that uh, we don't kill our own mother. Uh, similarly, we don't kill the cow. And Raj, the you... implications of this, uh, the economic implications, it, it's hard for us to fathom. <laughs> but it means uh, making quite profound changes, really. Maybe you could say more about that, Maharaj, the economic implications of maintaining cows, because, I mean, we have various farm communities around the world, but we also have in the UK the Ahimsa Dairy Farm, which I saw you visited on your website. I saw pictures of you there. Yeah. And I know that Sitaram Prabhu is struggling with that in one sense to understand i know he said to me what is the economic solution for bulls or for oxen that yeah. how will they maintain themselves you know or how we how will they help us to maintain them like the cows they produce milk which you can sell which he's selling yeah. but the bulls and the oxen how does that work is it just that you're you know spending money to look after cows and you just kind of expect that to come back through the cosmos, as you mentioned, through you know some goodwill of the universe, or does it actually make economic sense to protect cows? It makes economic sense to protect cows and bulls when we become genuinely dependent on them as it is now because we have a fossil fuel based economy uh, which is an extractive economy at a rate at a rate which is uh, dizzyingly dangerous i've just i was just uh, earlier today watching a video a short presentation i mean it's uh, it's quite scary <laughs> the direction we're going uh, at how we are depleting our resources, destroying our environment. When we, when we sort of draw back from all of that, and um, it means also slowing down, you know, bulls, oxen are not very fast. <laughs> Uh, it means it means slowing down the whole society, really. Um, and it means, as far as I can understand, because I'm not an economist, but as far as I understand in the long run, it also involves uh, some sort of state support. And you may say, well, how would it have been in ancient times in India? In ancient times, there would have been very large areas of open pasture uh, where 
the inactive oxen could have been pastured and that would have been the occupation of uh, of of cow herds or oxen herds to look after them just to you know spend the day with them um, that would have been their their service and the the oxen and the cow uh, the bulls they're doing a service as i said um, <laughs> there's the the dung and the urine they're giving throughout their lives which is giving which is fertilizing the soil and then that soil that land uh, will be mm, by some rotation system and so on it can be used also for planting and that's been recognized uh, by some modern uh, modern uh, scholars people who are studying agriculturalists the 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 value of um, of ruminants such as cows especially uh, for keeping healthy soil but again it would require from the economic side i think in a s significant way support uh, from the larger community which means ultimately the state until the state recognizes the value um, we we struggle and that's why sitaram certainly struggles and um and he has to his his maintaining of his project requires that uh people who buy his milk uh have to pay quite a premium for that milk they're willing to do it because they understand uh this is cow this is milk from protected cows and so they're willing to do that but in a sense it's a kind of charity uh system charity operation but i think it also means um i think it means a reduction sort of overall in the number of cows that would be populating a particular land uh now with industrial slaughtering meat industry they're producing and reproducing and also for the dairy industry they're they're producing sort of maximum numbers of cows and then killing and then killing so it kind of circulates that way the whole system of uh with a lifespan giving the lifespan of a cow being 16 to 20 years rather than you know 3 4 5 years means and and the immediate practically immediate killing of of the bulls it means there's going to have to be a major adjustment <laughs> there's a lot of uh, talk about i haven't seen much actually doing i know in uh nuvrajadam they are planning they're not just planning they're constructing now 
a large hall where they're going to be having bulls uh, or oxen engaged in uh, energy production. Um, that sort of thing, I think, needs to be developed. Um, you know, certainly that's an area where uh, engineers could get involved in developing uh, really good uh, oxen-driven machinery uh, to maximize the uh, the the translation of that energy into different functions. Thank you, Maj. I was also just thinking that is it not that oxen they also traditionally they would be plowing the land, no, and so for, the land, of course, for yes. the main production. Uh -huh. Yes, I didn't mention that. That's maybe the more obvious thing. Um, but that gets into another subject is whether we are over over plowing <laughs> the land um should we be you know reducing the the way that we plow and the depth and width and so on because of uh the opening up the earth you know releases carbon that's one of the problems of uh this kind of agriculture. But yes, they're used for that, for transportation of goods. And this involves then also uh, this, you know, to, to, you need teamsters. So instead of one man driving a tractor, which is using fossil fuel and going over th uh, thousands of hectares uh, you need you need uh, many more skilled teamsters and also it mentions in the Vedic literature one should uh, one should not overwork the oxen and indeed it says in one place the minimum number of oxen to pull a plow if I remember correctly, is four. Mm. <laughs> there should be four and preferably six or eight pulling one plow. <laughs> so that takes, um, that's, there's a lot of management involved to do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it just just hearing about it slows you down in terms of thinking of doing things, <laughs> agriculture, the size of it immediately reduces, doesn't it? That yeah. a thousand acre farms or thousands of acres and these huge machines that we see them using these days. Yes, one of my colleagues uh, in America who, who keeps cows and bulls in this way has pointed out that in earlier times, it was the oxen, the bulls, and then oxen who were uh, particularly valued. And when a cow was born, that was a bonus. Oh, we get some milk also. Mm. But the particular need was for the bull, the oxen. 
So yeah, slowing down, just thinking about it makes us slow down. <laughs> um, we're at a very interesting point sociologically now that people are becoming more and more aware of climate change and the destructive effect we're having on the environment. And I experienced that I'm coming in contact with a lot of people, non-devotees, who are extremely ecologically minded. Like we have various initiatives in the local area where mm -hmm. there are shops which have zero packaging, uh, where we have organizations to uh, get food from local producers and to reduce the dependency on supermarkets. Mm -hmm. And also they have certain standards, like I mentioned in Kent Food Hubs here, where if you want to be a producer within that, you're not allowed to use plastic. You have to be um, cutting down on your food miles, how often and how far you're, you're making your food travel. Yeah. So people are very concerned and and diligently try and do something to counteract the direction that our climate damage is going in. Mm. And they, they're doing their best, you know, they're trying to make a positive change. Yeah. And I think this, this knowledge from the Vedas is definitely something that could really help them to go further and to provide certain solutions to to problems that they don't we don't necessarily know the the answers to so what yeah. advice would you have for somebody who wants to live in a more environmentally friendly way well, how can the vedas or any knowledge about cows or agriculture or, or krishna consciousness in general help people who want to do something good for the planet and live in a way with the with the least um ecological footprint or carbon footprint what what advice would you give maharaj well, uh, it depends how deep we want to go <laughs> into philosophy, Vedic philosophy. Um, the thing is, I mentioned before, as starting from the reality, the sort of harsh reality of biological violence, that we as uh, biological beings are consuming other biological beings. And to, I think a first step is to recognize that and to reflect deeply on the implications of that. So what are the implications? Well, one implication that we understand from the Vedic tradition is that we are implicated. <laughs> implicated means that no matter how much goodwill we have and good intentions we have, there's something called karma, which literally just means action, but has the implied meaning that with every action, there is reaction. And the reaction comes in any number of ways that we cannot see. In other words, it's a, it's a universe in which, um, along with the laws of nature, um, what we call laws of nature, like gravity and the various energies, 
there's also moral law, and that comes particularly or is expressed in terms of what we call karma. And uh, this is a problem. It's a problem for ourselves in the sense that, as we understand from the Bhagavad Gita, uh, this is one of many lives that we go through. In fact, any number of lives that we are uh, without beginning, in fact, and without end. And we're taking on these different bodies. Um, and which sort of body we get is determined, practically speaking, by uh, our action in a previous life. And for some people, that sounds great. They say, oh, okay, so when this life's over, uh, I get another body. Yes, you get another body, but what sort of body? <laughs> this uh, has to be thought about. It could be that one gets a very miserable condition of life. Even if we get a human body, um, you know, what sort of situation do we, uh, are we born into? We do not know. Uh, and so much of uh, the teaching of uh, yoga, which is a central idea of Bhagavad Gita is, uh, is about sort of redirecting our consciousness in such a way uh, that number one, we are reducing what we can call our karma footprint. Instead of our carbon footprint, we have a karma footprint. So reducing the karma, uh, the karma footprint, but again, we can't, we cannot, just like we can't jump out of our shadow, we can't get away from our shadow, we cannot get away from our karma, except by a process of yoga, and specifically bhakti yoga. And your whole project is called the bhakti project, because uh, this is what you are about. And in this uh, understanding, uh, it comes back to thinking about what we eat and thinking about the whole process um, of sourcing what we eat and then going even a step further than how we generally think about food. We think about the source, how it's grown and so on, and, and how, how it uh, comes to our table, as we say. But the bhakti component, which can facilitate reducing and ultimately eliminating the karma footprint, is to also uh, become aware of what is our mentality in preparing that food, growing it and harvesting it and cooking it, and then thinking about, okay, now it's all ready for me to eat. 
no, it's not ready for me to eat. First, I'm going to offer it as, as a gift, as, an, as a gesture of gratitude to God. And if I can do this with, a, with some devotion, and that's the, the word bhakti is the Sanskrit for devotion. If I can do that, if I can make such an offering with devotion, Krishna says in the Gita, he says, even if you only offer me some fruit, um, you know, you just pick an apple from the tree and if you offer that to me with devotion, I will accept it. And if, if God, whom we understand from our tradition, we call Krishna, the all-attractive one, if he accepts our offering, we are freed from any karma implication. And there's a bonus when we, because Krishna is very kindly allowing us then to take the remnants of that food. He doesn't, you know, it doesn't sort of disappear into a black hole. Uh, there are stories, sometimes it does disappear. <laughs> but generally, but generally Krishna is very kind. He leaves it for us. After he has enjoyed, he leaves. We take what we call the remnants, the prasad, and that um, not only... It, not only is the karma footprint zero, but the bhakti, how to say, uh, footprint, maybe, <laughs> it goes up. We're benef we, we, we gain in devotion. We are rewarded by greater feeling uh, of of uh, well, a greater understanding, I would say, also of our position within this whole universe, within the environmental situation. And then that's going to lead naturally to making right decisions on the practical level of what to do, what not to do for the environment in the best possible way. So Maharaj, you're saying that if we take our food, which necessarily involves violence, and I think what you're indicating is that even if we're vegetarian, then we're eating vegetables, we're eating fruits, which damages or kills that plant. Yeah. Then if we're understanding that that comes from God and we're offering that food back to God, back to Krishna, then our karma becomes nullified in terms of taking that from nature in the first place. And then that will help us to think more clearly and be able to deal with other issues like the environmental issues. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. We'll be able to think more clearly. <laughs> because, and thinking clearly, we'll understand more clearly. Uh, what we understand is how small we are. Uh, in this whole cosmic uh, situation, 
that makes us humble. And when we're a little humble, uh, then we're more uh, willing and able to uh, to take to distinguish between what we what we need and what we want. Our problem in this world is desire. We ha we all have desire, and um, we suffer from. As in particular, we suffer from a disease of greed. Uh, we we think we need more than we do, and from that, uh, we suffer. Other human beings suffer. The whole world suffers. So we can think more clearly if we follow this process. I, I think that although people may be well-intentioned and they want to do something good for the planet, then as we were saying, they may not know what is the best thing to do. And yeah. typically in our Western mentality, it's all based on empirical knowledge is based on research of you know we've done these this research and this is the conclusion or this is you know what we think is to be the truth and it just goes off in so many various directions mm. like such as many people these days think that cows are really bad for the environment um mm -hmm. that they're producing methane and that this is you know contributing to global warming so yeah. that's one reason also i think why so many people are becoming vegans i don't know what the situation is over in poland but here in the uk yeah. it's like skyrocketing this veganism yeah and and people think that cows are a problem in terms of yeah. global warming so what, what would you say to that Marge? how would we because people can if they get certain data, certain information from certain sources, and then they're convinced that, you know, cows should be, you know, not, I don't know, abandoned or not, not bred and not used. We shouldn't come in contact with them because they're bad for the environment. So mm -hmm. what can we say to such people? Well, first, I would agree um, that um, cows in in such numbers as are being kept, again, I mentioned this before, this sort of industrial uh, uh, production of cows and then the, you know, the products of cows. Uh, certainly this is bad for the environment. Like any other kind of mass production involving um, living beings. It's going to be damaging. Uh, so in this respect, I think uh, we have something, we have a lot to learn from the vegans. And I appreciate uh, the, the, broadly speaking, a lot of what vegans are arguing for. I myself not to, you know, boast or something, but 
I decided some years ago that I'm not going to take any uh, dairy unless it's unless I know that it's coming from cows that are being protected uh, for life. And that means I'm not taking very much dairy. <laughs> um, and since I'm older, that turns out to be better for my health anyway. <laughs> but uh, I think the total cow population would, as I mentioned, be considerably reduced, but uh, more people would have more connection with cows, as we've seen in not so many generations ago, people had a farm and they had a few cows. And I've heard it repeatedly, not only in India, but uh, the, uh, the ethos of keeping a few cows or a couple of cows was that these cows are family members. We consider them part of our family. And in that relationship, uh, what the vegans are concerned about, we're also concerned about. What's problematic with uh, some of the, there's a whole spectrum of vegan ideas and on the more extreme end, uh, the abolitionist veganism says uh, that, as best I can understand, they say that human humans should essentially have no connection, no relation with animals. There should be no uh, domestication of animals and so on. And I would say that goes along with a certain component of the Indian tradition, namely the renunciants, uh, those who have renounced their family, they live in the forest. Yeah, they have nothing to do with domestic animals. Although we read about ashrams where maybe there were some deer <laughs> who would naturally gather because it was so peaceful and so on. Um, but what the vegan abolitionist is not considering, it seems to me, is that if you're uh, completely disconnecting from animals, that means if you're going to do any farming, uh, plowing the fields, as you said, preparing the field and so on. If you're going to do any transportation or anything, you have two choices. Either you're going to use machines which are ultimately run on fossil fuel, or you're going to be doing it yourself. You're gonna be getting out there um, with a shovel and a pick and you're going to find out very quickly that for the amount of wheat that you want to grow for one uh, loaf of bread, you are not going to be strong enough uh, to prepare that, that field. Uh, and even if you manage to prepare the field, you're not going to have energy left over to grind the grain uh, 
uh, and to you know, and what's the fuel going to come from that's going to bake your bread? So, I, as far as I've been able to see, uh, this hasn't been thought through uh, by the abolitionist position of uh, the vegan movement. But again, I really appreciate much of what the vegan movement is saying. They're, they are uh, very much concerned. How are animals being treated? Um, I would just say, let's really focus on how um, industrial agriculture is uh, treating animals and let's do whatever we can to stop that. Um, but to say we should have therefore no animals. I, I don't, we don't have any evidence of any time in history uh, or prehistory that human beings were not uh, involved with animals. And I don't know how that would work. Um, in practical terms, <laughs> how human beings are, we're very dependent beings. Uh, the other choice is um, to become hunter-gatherers. Um, but that means hunting and that means killing. So, you know, where, what do you do? <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I was just speaking to one lady recently, um, Kate from the Kent Food Hubs, and we were discussing about how to develop food security here in Kent amongst various producers or just kind of mm -hmm. throwing up some ideas. And she was saying how one shop in uh, Folkestone called uh, Refill, no, Restock, where they only sell things without packaging. It's like they have dal in a jar. You come in and bring your own package, your own mm -hmm. bowl or whatever, and you take it away. Mm. She was saying how the, the washing up liquid there is manufactured, I think, in the next house, and you come <laughs> and you take it. And, uh -huh. and she said, actually, even when they transport things for that washing up liquid, it's, it's done with electric vehicles. And I said, I said, that's okay, but I said electric vehicles are not sustainable either. It's not that solar yeah. panels, are good. you're going to put them in your compost heap and you're going to get, you know, <laughs> compost out of them and you're going to, that, that's, that's going to pollute the environment. We see, you know, huge solar panel farms these days, at least in yeah. England, they're using huge swathes of land and it's yeah. all made of glass and electrics and plastic. And so after, I would... after a certain number of years, those things break down. They have to be replaced. Yeah. So I said to her, I said, forget the electric vehicles. You should use a bullet cart. <laughs> and the face, <laughs> the look on her face when I said that was kind of <laughs> mixture between shock and kind of happy surprise that actually that <laughs> sounds kind of good <laughs> in a way. <laughs> Yeah, people don't think of that. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it's interesting how it takes us back to such a point in our past 
that in one sense is kind of shocking in the sense that it may be primitive, but in another sense kind of comforting in the fact that actually that's what people did for, for thousands, modern science would say for thousands of years. Right. Yeah, this, uh, we've, we've lost touch so much that we forget uh, that it's even possible to live that way. And so when we think, how would we actually do it? It becomes difficult to think, mm -hmm. how, how would that work? <laughs> and we're yeah. so locked in uh, to the economy that we have uh, which is so deeply artificial, not just artificial, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really dangerous, I think, what we're doing with it. Um, the whole system of investment and high finance and so on, it's just, it's just extracting from the planet like anything. Uh, so we, we, you know, how would you do that? We don't even know. But that's very nice to hear that um, people are thinking about this in your area and doing what they can. That's, that's wonderful. And I'm assuming it's not just in Ashford in Kent that people are thinking about these things. I know that this Kent Food Hubs, just for instance, is connected to the Open Food Network, which mm -hmm. began in Australia, and that's, that's kind of a global thing. And, uh -huh. and it's like the, the more I learn about just these kind of sustainable, ethical projects, then I hear of so many, so many more. So yeah. there's a lot, yeah. I think, that as devotees, we can learn from, from people who are trying to develop these projects and, and we can Definitely. collaborate with them. Definitely, yes. And it gives us hope also that there are people uh, with uh, some sensibility like this, more and more people. I mean, it wasn't very long ago, a few decades ago, uh, when any kind of concern about the environment was, was a very marginal thing. It was only very mar socially marginal people who were even talking about these things. And a, f a few intellectuals and a few scientists. But now it's become, uh, it's become very mainstream. And I think that gives some hope. I sort of oscillate between hope and, you know, completely, oh, <laughs> <laughs> we're we're headed off the deep end <laughs> Maharaj I was going to ask that is there is there hope what do you think is going to happen that we're, li we're living in such a way where as you said at the high speed we are basically destroying the world around us mm -hmm. um, and from what we hear then the pace of that needs to be slowed down at a very high rate. And even though promises are made by various institutions or governments, it seems those targets are never, never hit. 
So yeah. what is it that, I mean, I know I sometimes ask you these speculative questions. Um, <laughs> then what is it that you um, think is going to happen? Like, are we going to all, you know... Let me look into my crystal ball. No. <laughs> As I said, I oscillate between sort of uh, hope and hopelessness. But um, as human beings, we can't live without hope. And so uh, we, the, the hope may be pinned to the sorts of um, initiatives that are going on that you've described, the sorts of things that uh, a few devotee com Krishna communities are trying to do, uh, and, and perhaps uh, a certain amount of miracle in the sense that uh, there, there can be changes which none of us can anticipate uh, because we are so limited in our in individually and collectively. Um, just like this pandemic, we nobody who had this idea, you know, ask all the astrologers. <laughs> so how come you didn't predict? Oh, we were predicting. I. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> why, if you did, then why didn't you make it known? So, on the positive side, uh, miracles are possible, but we don't wait for miracle to happen. We don't just yeah. sort of uh, wait for some magic to happen. We use all the intelligence we can we speak as much as we can uh, about what we understand needs to be done. Uh, we give example as best we can, practical example and also in our whole lifestyle. Um, and as you mentioned, we also um, recognize that so many people are doing good things and we have so much to learn from them. So let, the, let everything that's valuable um, in practical terms be learned and further spread. But what I, my latest concern or thinking is that unless there's some truly revolutionary changes in our economic system. And I don't mean that now we should all become communists or socialists or something like that. Uh, there's one movement called Slow Money, uh, where they, um, they find ways to invest in projects which are environmentally which are protecting the environment instead of uh, destroying the environment. So that sort of thing. There are ideas about developing different kinds of local uh, money uh, where you, you have uh, internationally exchangeable money and then you have local money which um, 
which kind of forces what you were mentioning before, having uh, local products, that local economy becomes developed, encouraged by local money, and that can be supported by the national uh, government. Um, but then you start to ask, okay, what's, what's the political system that would make that possible? Uh, <laughs> well, that's, that needs more intelligence than I have. From our own, from the Vedic tradition, we understand that's what kings do. Kings who are also sages, Raja Rishi. Um, where do we where do we find such such leaders? Thank you, Maharaj. Yeah, there's so many questions, and like you said, it's it's difficult to know where we're at, what's going to happen. Even though we, as as Vaishnavas, we have faith in our scriptures in Shima Bhagavatam and in our teachers like Srila Prabhupada who have described so many things and also it may sound strange to some but what's to happen in the future as well but maybe not all of the details are ex explained like 2021 to 2025 and you know there's not a chapter necessarily about that so I guess we'll have to just wait and see and do our best in the meantime um, Maharaj, thank you so much for being with us. I don't want to take the whole night of yours. I know it's um, one hour later there with you in mm -hmm. um, Poland. Um, and I'm well, extremely honoured. It's been my pleasure. I hope sometime I can come visit your project. Maybe worth coming and visiting after we actually have some land uh, to show you we don't have any land yet please bless us that that can manifest in time um yeah. i like the slow money investment um uh idea I'll, I'll check that out yes do look for that that's interesting well uh yes all the best for your project and uh, i'll be interested to hear as it develops thank you Maurice. thank you so much for your time and and anybody out there who's seeing this interview please um check out maraj's book um Kalka, uh, in hindu animal ethics and he was explaining that it's free source so you can actually download the e-version online for free but i'm assuming that you can get a hard copy that you can purchase is that yeah. right Maharaj? yes of course and um to find where to get the book either to order uh, as a hard copy or to download free. Uh, just search the title on Google and uh, it'll come up. Wonderful. Yeah, I found it very easily. Okay, thank you Maharaj, so much for your time. I'm very privileged and honored that you came to us and agreed to be interviewed. And thank you for enlightening us and explaining those <laughs> on these topics. I'm also going to check the book out and, and get some more information and, and also talk to, we're intimately or quite intimately connected to one dairy farm, which is just down the road. I was there today, as I said, in one message to you today. 
And mm-hmm. I'll ask them to listen to this interview because they, although they're a traditional dairy farm, they've set aside a small herd which is never going to be killed and they're oh. selling the milk from those cows. Very and, nice. And they, they, they love their cows. They want to look after their cows. So I'll... Then, and they're always interested to hear what is the Vedic conception of cows? Why are they so important? Why is their dung and urine pure? Yeah. Because they love their cows. They're, they've looked after cows their whole lives, mm. but they don't have any of that that insight into the the amazing value of cows. So yeah, yeah. So no, hopefully we very nice. Give something back to them too. Okay, thank you, Maharaj. Thank you, Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Thank you. Mm-hmm.